So I love those holy moments that we get in church from time to time. And uh, that, was, that was one of those, I think. And uh, see that guy right there? He's got a new baby at home. For the life of me, I can't remember his name, but her name is Phoebe. And uh, Brian and Kristen have a new baby. You want to give them the details like you did in the first service? Um, there we go. Phoebe Joy, um, she was eight pounds, 15 ounces, 21 and three quarters inches long. So anyway, mama's good. The baby's good. So thank you for your prayers. Yeah, we're excited for them. And, uh, that's a pretty good sized baby, but they say you cook them longer, they get bigger like that. And Kristen was overdue, and I know she's happy to be through that. So, all right, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 4. Um, so let's play a little game of what would you do with it. If somebody came to you in a legitimate kind of way and said, I want to give you a gift of $5 million. First of all, would you consider that to be a good day? Um, $5 million. And then they said to you, you're free to do whatever you want with that $5 million. Totally your money. Once it changes out of our hands into yours, it's yours to do with what you want. Um, I wonder what you would do with it. Just so you know, this is not a sermon on tithing. Um, if you had $5 million to do with whatever you wanted, what would you do with it? And now let me turn that just to Tad and ask you this question. If you had that $5 million to do with whatever you wanted, how many of you would buy 30 seconds of TV advertising time with it? if it took all $5 million for 30 seconds of a TV ad. I don't see any hands going up. Um, according to those who track such data, at least for some of the Super Bowl ads of this month, not even a month ago, 30 seconds worth of TV ad cost in the neighborhood of $5 million. Now, I know that many people, uh, many of us, um, record the Super Bowl and care nothing about the football, but record it strictly for the advertisements, right? The commercials, right? Am I talking to the right group? Yes? So, if your life depended on it, if somebody was standing with a gun to your head and said to you, Name all of the various vendors who bought Super Bowl ad time for TV. Could you do that if your life depended on it? Most of us couldn't do that. Most of us couldn't even recall a month later, not even a month later, five of those commercials. Now, here's the deal. Just from a marketing standpoint, 
If the people that you are, your audience that you're pushing the, the advertisement out to, if they can't remember the product that's being sold, you wasted your money. And that tends to be the case. Even if you could get some of the ones from this year's Super Bowl, how about last year's Super Bowl? It's amazing to me what that says to us about the value system of America today, that we're willing to put that kind of money out like that for those kind of things, to sell a bunch of corn chips, but, uh, which, by the way, was the best of those commercials, I thought. Um, but that's beside the point. Here, let me turn it now totally, and let's put it on not a hypothetical, but let's put it on a real-life situation. Have you ever really considered what God was thinking when he set up all of Christianity and the move of Christianity, our charge as Christian people to take the gospel message into the world, to be, as Jesus said in Matthew, to be salt and light, as Paul said, to be ambassadors for Christ, to be agents of reconciliation, All of the Christian enterprise, if you'll let me use that term, God said, I know, here's a great marketing approach. Let's put it in the hands of the people. And so God did exactly that. You and I are the advertisements to a lost world of the validity of the claims of Christ. Now, knowing you like you do, Does that cause you to question God just a little little bit? God, what were you thinking? Surely there's a better alternative than to rely on me to be that agent, that advertisement. It is to that exact point that James has written his letter. Five short chapters, really, even though now we're six months into looking at them. Five short chapters where James argues into the midst of a church, that earliest of churches, a first century church, first writing of the New Testament almost certainly, and James writes into that to that group of people and he takes them to task on the ways that they are failing as effective advertisement for the claims of Jesus Christ. And so we've seen that time and again as we've walked through and James talked about your tongue and he's talked about being vacillating back and forth in what you say you believe and how you act and he's talked about these people who are so self-driven and so selfishly motivated that they just eat each other up and so that brings us here to the end of chapter four where James make his final turn now in his presentation to that early church and in this final term he, he pushes once again that your faith has to work. If your faith doesn't work out there in the dirty world in which we live, then you're a bad advertisement. James, as you have seen as we've gone through this, James uh, holds nothing back. He pulls no punches. He goes for the kill time and time again to that part of us that is selfishly motivated and driven in the way we live our Christian lives. Part of the struggle of a faith that works for us comes in the planning part of our lives, the the planning forward especially. So let me ask you, what's on tap for you this week? As you sit here today, 
do you have a pretty good idea of what you're going to do this week? Let me take it off of that and let's put it on your future. What kind of financial goals do you have set for you and your family? Do you know where you're going? I mean, if you had to sit down with somebody, a a retirement planner, for instance, could you lay out for them, oh, here's what we're planning on doing. If the stock market ever would leave us alone, this is where we're headed. James gets right up in our business with this. And here's the basic truth that he seems to be driving today. Christians cannot plan for the future as if they control everything. Too many unknowns about the future. Actually, there's a deeper reason than that. But the basic truth that James promotes here is that Christians cannot plan for the future as if they controlled everything. Let's look at this passage and see. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13 now, James says this. Come now. Let me just stop right there. With the words, come now, James takes on the mantle of an Old Testament prophet. The way he says these two words trumpets across that congregation backwards to those Old Testament prophets, those guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Elijah who would stand in front of the people and say, you need to listen to what God has to say. That's the force of those first two words. In other words, James once again refuses to kind of meekly back into a discussion. He begins with the shot between the eyes. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so James, with these words now, helps us to to lock on to a basic truth, and that is that we are prone to violate the principle that says we don't know what the future holds, and yet we plan as if we did. I know that many of you out there, especially those of you who are business people and are in charge of running companies and and running plants and those kind of, I know that you, you get the fact that there are those elements of the unknown future, but part of what James would say to us in our time, I think, is that we have contingencies upon contingencies so that we're not really surprised by anything. We have something set up to be able to handle because we like to plan the future. Before it's all said and done, I want to try to draw some balance to that statement. But let's not fail to start from the outset to own what is ours to own. Reality is, we like to plan as if we control the future. For instance, uh, I served the church at one time, and, and this truth came home for me in a way that I hadn't ever really thought about, but it sure uh, hit me between the eyes. I went to this little town in southeastern New Mexico. Now, if you haven't been to southeastern New Mexico and you get a chance to go, don't go, okay? Just save yourself the heartache. 
Uh, there's really nothing there. Even these days, the oil industry is such, there's really nothing there for you to see. Um, and uh, so I was in, I went to this town and I went to serve this church and, and immediately upon arrival, I started hearing from all of these kids, and I mean kids as in junior high, high school, young high school kids, all of whom had decided that they were going to go to a certain college in Arkansas. Now, if you're from Arkansas, please don't be offended by this. I didn't even know Arkansas had things like colleges. I don't mean that the way it sounds. Um, I just, I, I knew, I mean, I'd heard of University of Arkansas. That's who Texas used to beat up on in football all the time. And, um, but I didn't really know that they had other schools there until I got to this church. And all of these kids were going to go to this one particular Baptist school in Arkansas. Well, it didn't take me long to figure out why because as I started talking to people uh, I discovered that the youth minister before me had been a graduate of that particular college. Interestingly, when he left that church, he went back to that college as a recruiter for them. And so all of these kids, junior high age and up, middle school and up, had already decided that that's where they were going to go to college. You know why they decided that? Because their youth minister told them that's where they ought to go. So here's a little question for you. Where's God in that? It's not any different than those of us who have already decided that our kids or our grandkids must go to LSU. Well, that just got real personal all of a sudden, didn't it? Or Texas A&M. No, nobody go to Texas. Um, I'm just kidding about that. You know that, right? Yes, right. Godly people go to Baylor. That's what I was told. Um, so let me introduce you to, that's all tongue-in-cheek. If you're visiting with us, I don't care about any of those colleges, really. They all, the ones I went to got my money already. So, um, so let, me, let, me, let me take you to a comment a statement my dad used to make on a regular basis. When we come to those kinds of things, if we think about God's will at all, we reduce God's will to our own perspective. And then we attach this sentiment to it. Well, it must be God's will because it seems so right to me. We reduce, in other words, the sovereignty of God and his plan for our lives into a, a logical kind of examination that leads us to action. We might just miss God in that process. One of the realities is that we all suffer from this need to control. Now, some of us suffer from that much worse than others do. But all of us suffer with that. The essence of sin is control. I will pull the strings. I will call the shots. I will be God in my life. And nowhere is that more evident than as we start looking towards the future. It's interesting that James speaks into this. And the background for this text, just so that we get it right, 
um, is that James is now in this final turn. He's beginning to take on the wealthy in that church or those churches of that first century. And, And he's talking to a group of people. There would not have been very many of them in these early churches. Many of these people were just like most of us, just blue collar working hard to make a living. But James steps into the mix and we're going to find in chapter five, James gets flat rude with some things. But he's talking to a group of people and he takes on the wealthy in the church and he talks about how their faith and its lack of working is bad advertisement for the kingdom of God. It doesn't even get out of the inside of the church before it's bad advertising. And so he takes them on. And, and here's, you know, let me just kind of quickly dissect these several verses for us. What we find is these merchants now, and that's the focus of this little section that we're looking at. These merchants have made up their mind on how the future will go. They are planning. We would say, I, I probably would be the first one to say, they are strategically looking forward and stepping into the marketplace in such a way as to be successful. That's not really their problem as much as it is, well, let me just show you where their problem is. Three, uh, four times in verse 13. Our English kind of softens this down some, but four times in verse 13, they take on this, we will do something. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and we will spend a year there and we will trade, and we will make a profit. He circles back around in verse 16 to underscore this and to bring it to its logical head. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. One of the things to pick up that section that James just had been talking about is is the division that is caused within the church when people take on positions uh, that are self-driven and self-motivated. And so now he turns to these merchants who go about their business, but according to him, they do so with an attitude that is damaging inside, but more than that, it's damaging on their relationship with God. And so verse 14 is the principle, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You know, that's, a, that's an insightful question for all of us. For you are a mist. Literally there the word is fog. And we recognize that here in southeast Texas on those mornings where you're driving through soup. And then all of a sudden, somewhere the fog lifts and you get clarity. That's the picture. Your life is like that. It appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Verse 15 then is the correction for that. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. So we fight the the struggle about planning so intensely as to control the future. Versus that tension that says we will let God walk us through the future. So here's the question for you. Does your faith work in the way you plan your life? Maybe the place for us to begin as we 
start pulling this into application is that basic understanding that God, in fact, has a plan for your life. Do you believe that? I think that many of us in church would say, yes, I, I believe that God has a plan for my life. Uh, but in case you don't, and I, I, I recognize it, I, I affirm your right to not necessarily agree with that, but there are some scriptures you have to deal with if you don't agree with that. And here's one of them, and I hear this one quoted a lot, usually quoted grossly out of context. But in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, Jeremiah says, speaking for God, the prophet speaking to those people uh, exiled because of their disobedience, God says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And so God speaks through his prophet and says to a bunch of people who are hopelessly locked away in a foreign country because of their disobedience and God's correction of that. And God says to them, do not lose hope. I know where I'm taking you. What a great reality for us to hold on to. When the stock market has worked you over and all of your life goals have to be adjusted because of that. When the oil industry drops out and we fear for jobs just in the support industry, isn't it good to know that God says, I'm taking you somewhere? Living under the umbrella of God's plan. Now, you know, I don't really like the way that comes out. Living in the center of God's plan for your life brings incredible fulfillment. Now, there's some implications to that, but let me just support what I just said this way. When Teresa and I received what we knew without question to be God's plan, his call on our life to, to leave the job that I had in Odessa in the late 80s, early 90s, I was making too much money for a kid my age. I had too much responsibility rising through the, through the ranks. And God allowed all of that to happen. And then in the middle of that, God said, you know what? I want you to quit your job and I want you to go off to college because if there was ever a potential minister who needed an education, it was me. And so we said, okay, we'll do that. And so we started checking around. We knew without a question, both of us did, that that was God's plan for us. And that, that was his input, specific input to our situation at that time to go do that. So we went and we checked out of college and uh, they were kind of offensive. No, they were very offensive. And we walked away from that. And instead of saying, we'll never go to that school, both of us decided we'll just stay where we are and not go to school at all. You know that God allowed us to make that choice even though he had told us to do something else? And for the next two years, our marriage went below the basement of what marriages ought to be. God gave us a child during that time and he had an immune deficiency that was difficult for us. And we had nothing to stand on in our marriage at that point. It was just falling apart. And then all of a sudden, one day, God renewed the call. I told you to go to school. 
You know, by that time, uh, the money had lost its appeal. Uh, the fast track uh, of the company guy that I was had planned on had lost its appeal. And we were miserable enough that I quit my job with a sick kid and a wife. And we moved to Plainview, Texas. You ever been to Plainview? If you get a chance to go, just keep driving through Damarillo, okay, because there's more north. Um, and went to school with no way to pay for school, no way to pay for that sick child's treatment, and no job. And it was the most incredible experience of our lives to that point. Because we finally did what God told us to do. Now, some of you sitting there, and I know your wife is thinking of you as, your, as her husband. Don't you be thinking about quitting your job because of what the preacher said. So here's the key. You better know God said it before you do it. You see, going off to school like that was not in my plans at all. I, I hadn't even planned on going to college, I got, which, by the way, you know, you need to figure out. Don't, don't just go to college because they have one. That's crazy. You don't, you don't go to a restaurant just because it opens. You need to know not just where you're going to go to college, but if you're going to go to college. Now, I know parents are going, no, 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 don't say that to my kids. I'm saying that to all of us. Be careful to hear what God's plans for you or for your children are. Parents, teach your children to hear from God. If they're going to college or a particular college because of you, you may very well be messing them up for a long time. It is about God's plan. And either we believe that and Scripture's support of that, or we don't. So as, as we moved, maybe, so now I'm, now I'm to the horse analogy, Right? And the goal is to get up on the horse and ride it. But the reality is that we have the very real possibility of falling off of the horse on either side. And so here's the either side that I'm talking about now. There is that one part that we might hear as I'm talking through this and James is talking through this. Uh, and that is that, okay, so are you saying, preacher, that God is wanting to micromanage my life? You understand the term micromanage? Think back to your mother. That's micro. No, I'm just kidding about that. Um, micromanaging is that point of reference that says, you work for me, uh, and I'm going to expect this from you, but I'm going to be in your pocket all day long telling you, do this, don't do that. No, you shouldn't have done this, that. And every little piece of every little day is dictated for you. So does God micromanage our lives. Let me ask it to you this way. Do you think God cares where you have lunch today? Do you think that maybe if you haven't been listening for the voice of God and taking God's plans for you for the future, you think that maybe God really wants you to go have gumbo for lunch? I got to tell you, if gumbo's on the menu, I always think that's where God wants me to go. All right? Um, but it's an interesting question, I think. 
Does God really have every little piece of every little day? Here's my response to that, okay? I, you know, it's not right. I ask you a question and then I give you what I think is the right answer. But I think that maybe God doesn't care that much where you eat most of the time. Um, but I think sometimes he does. Because it may very well be that there is a divine appointment wrapped up in your lunch schedule today. You understand what I mean, divine appointment? It's those times that when we're walking with the Lord and, and we get that, that little nudge, and sometimes it's a real hard shove that says, okay, divert your plan to this over here. And once we get over there, we see that God has placed somebody strategically, I would say, placed them in our path. Because you do remember that we are called to be salt and light, right? <laughs> They're still asleep. Salt and light. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ. We're called to be agents of reconciliation. And so those times that the Holy Spirit moves us and changes that little plan, maybe it's at lunch today and you want to go have good Italian food in Lumberton, but something pushes you into Beaumont and you go into Beaumont and you sit down and you start a conversation with a waitress who's ready to give up on life. Because life's just so hard. Instead of being that Christian from hell client of hers, you step into that hurting world of hers and become salt and light. See, I think God sets those kind of things up for his children who are willing to hear it. It's part of the point of this. Does he micromanage? I don't think so. Pretty confident he doesn't. He let Israel make so many choices that finally he had to say, you know what, I just got to send you to Babylon for a while. The other side of the horse is that we are so overly spontaneous in living that we find ourselves at the mercy of the circumstances. That same guy that I was talking about, I'm not against him or anything like that, but I sure had to been three years cleaning up some of the stuff that he left, but uh, that youth minister at that church that I was talking about was notorious. The, the common description I got of him from people in that church was how he just loved to fly by the seat of his pants. Can I give you a, a corollary to the rule of aerodynamics? When you fly by the seat of your pants, you're not going to fly for very long. It is not about just going with the flow in life. If you don't plan, there's plenty of Proverbs that support this, plenty of Old Testament, plenty of good, solid business truth that you need to plan. Matter of fact, you if you know me at all, if you've been part of any committee or any of the leadership stuff that I've tried to do in four and a half years plus that I've been here, it is this. As a church, we must be strategic all the time in what we do. Well, by definition, strategic means we need to be planning ahead. So you can fall off the horse on either side. You can just think that God wants to dictate every little piece of your life, or you can just kind of fly by the seat of your pants and hope that he'll save you when you crash. But James is saying, find the center and hold to that. One of the things that I find with people when it comes to this planning stuff some people are so controlling 
Like I want you to hold your arms like this. No elbows flying here, okay? Some people are so controlling in the way they handle every little piece of their lives that when somebody nudges them off of center on their plan, they just go off. They kill people who can't handle their control. If that's the case, as it relates to planning in your life, if you're the one who sets a plan and then you, you just sell out to it totally, let me take you back. This came to me through a professor that I had. Some of you have met him. Uh, and he was my full-time professor at Southwestern Seminary when I was there. He was also the full-time education minister for one of the largest churches in Fort Worth at the time. In other words, he had two more than full-time jobs, and he was doing both simultaneously. And so he was always on the go. He was one of those high achievers, and he was always on the go. He'd come marching into class, and he'd deliver his lecture, and then he'd march out of class. And, and one day he came in, and he was markedly different. He was much more laid back, uh, almost like you would like him if you had a chance to. And he started talking about one of the things that God was teaching him. And as it turns out, he had gone from the school to the church office. And as was his norm, when he went through the church office, he told his secretary, I got work to do, hold everything. And so he walks in, he shuts his door behind him in his office, and he dives into the stuff he had to work on, which was preparing for a teacher training and a weekly meeting with his Sunday school workers. Well, as he was about to get into that, his secretary rings through and he says, hey, Miss So-and-so, uh, is on the phone. She needs to talk to you. He said he got mad and just go, you know, I told you no calls. I'm busy. I don't have time for her right now. Take a message. So the secretary did that. And he dives into his Bible study and it's the same passage I referred to last week, Mark chapter 4, where Jesus is on his way from point A to point B and all these crowds are around him. And as he's moving through to go to this other place, uh, he gets this person who says, hey, uh, such and such's daughter is dying, and he needs you to come and help. That is an interruption. In other words, Jesus had plans. Interesting this, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, had plans, and his plans got interrupted by a need. And so he begins to go to deal with the interruption. In other words, his plans get put on hold. And he goes to deal with the interruption. And while he's going to deal with the interruption, some woman who has exhausted all medical help for her interrupts him again. And he stops and he deals with the interruption. And then he goes back to deal with the other interruption. Here's what our professor said. It is a lesson that has stuck with me. It has served me so well in ministry through the years. You need to have a plan, but when your plan causes you to ignore people that God puts in your path, you're wrong. I think that's where James is coming from here. These guys who were about the task of business had forgotten the task of people. And James says that's bad advertisement. As a matter of fact, it's killing your witness in the kingdom of God. So I'll close with this. Let me invite our musicians to come on up.
here's my, the thing I really want you to get. In order for this to work right, your faith has to work. Your faith will never work if you don't grow your ability to hear the voice of God. By definition, if this is to work, you have to hear what God has to say about your plans. For a church, it's easy for us to just decide, okay, we're going here. We got lots of plans that are going to start rolling out over the next month or so about some things that we need to do around here as far as our physical facilities. But you know what? If we do those things without hearing what God has to say, then we might very well let our plans lead us a long ways away from, away from what God wants for us. So can you hear from God? Are you regularly positioning yourself to hear from him? Teresa and I had season tickets to watch football, uh, high school football in the town that we came from because we had a son who played for a while and then our daughter was a cheerleader for, I don't know, forever. And uh, so we went to, to the football games to watch the cheerleaders. Don't get weirded out. It's my daughter, okay? Um, and the only tickets that we could get were directly under the loudspeaker next to the press box. And our friends who sat in front of us, church members, friends of ours, did a lot of stuff together, played golf with the guy. They always wanted to talk to us. I never heard a word they said for six years because that speaker above us was just, you know, it sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher, but it was loud. Our environment kept us from hearing people. Is the environment that you have set up for your life conducive to hearing the voice of God? If it's not, you need to fix that because God may very well be moving you outside of the plans that you have to do kingdom work. So what are you listening to? If you don't know Jesus Christ on a personal level, this this probably sounds crazy to you and I get that that somehow God, who we can't see, would speak to us in a way that we can actually hear him. But just have to, I just promise you, not because I, I read it somewhere, but because I've lived it now for a long time. God loves you, and he speaks into your reality. And the first step of patterning your life according to the plan that Jesus himself said is an abundant living kind of thing, a life that will blow your mind. The first necessary step is that you know him personally. But that only comes as you surrender yourself to him and trust him as your savior. If you haven't ever done that, then today's a great day to take that step. If you're not ready to take the step, but it sounds intriguing, then let's talk about it. And we'll begin a conversation that will help you understand even more what we're talking about. But don't miss that invitation. That is the ultimate plan change for your life. Most of us know Christ. We've taken that step. But maybe we've surrounded ourselves with an environment of control rather than of surrender. If that's the case, maybe today is a good day to start letting God be God of your plans. Let's pray. So, Father, as we come to this, the invitation time, we pray that your spirit would have free reign with us, that you would change lives now for your glory. In Jesus' name.